offer me money. Yes. Power to promise me that. All that I have and more. Please, offer me everything I ask for. Anything you want. I want my father back, you son of a bitch. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the Steal My Name podcast. I'm your host, Bob Barrow. It is Valentine's Day, according to the greeting card company, so that means it is February 14th. I've never been much of a Valentine's person myself. I do it in high school, and I know lots of people that love it. It's never been my jam. So I thought for this episode, I would bring in two of my favorite people, my favorite couple, who just happened to be having a wonderful Valentine's Day weekend. So it's not just Valentine's, it's a return of 14 months apart! I am joined, of course, by my wonderful sister Jack and my wonderful brother-in-law Marty. Yay! Team sport! So Jack, you have been been off the mic, away, out living life in the wild world, walking the earth, as Samuel L. Jackson once said. What the hell have you been up to? How's school? School's awesome, but school's always awesome. Now I've been hard at work in my new position. Everything's going good. Been going great? Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Very exciting. So for the the mystery voice here, we're joined, as I said, by Jack's husband, my brother-in-law. Marty, tell the people a little bit about yourself. They've been dying to know, you know, you're a longtime caller, first-time listener. So give them a little intro. Who who are you? What what speaks to you? Who am I? That's... uh... Do we have how much time do oh we have? Oh my god, it's a no. deep hour, man. Gave him yes, an really open here. invitation to so, keep going. So we didn't have much to talk about other than me tonight. That's that it. Correct? That's the only reason it's a big trick. Me and Marty have been planning this for weeks. <laughs> it's a six hour episode okay, tonight. Okay, I'm just gonna step out with the kids. You guys can do your thing. I suppose I suppose I'm the uh, tolerated uh, cohort of your lovely sister here. And uh, <laughs> What do you do for work? What, what, what do, do I do for yes, work? Yes, what do you do? You you have you have I, things that I you work, do. I work in the uh, the insurance industry. And, okay. Uh, <laughs> 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 so it's a good conversation. Yeah. <laughs> if, okay. if we want to get into deep into that topic, I can go on. No, no, for that's okay. Because I know there's been a I'm transition at your myself. There's a transition at your company recently that I know has caused lots of headaches. So why don't you get into some of the nitty gritty of what that transition's got? <laughs> can we? Uh, <laughs> Just not. <laughs> <laughs> no, Marty I is... I think that's yeah. better left for our uh, Another Financial time. Times uh, podcast. Yes. It's coming up uh, sometime quarter. That'll be the next episode. So yeah. I think maybe we should talk more about the creative side that you bring to yes. talking about these type of things. Yes, because you do come from an incredibly creative family. Your background is a musician. Yes, I do. Yes, I you do have a background as a musician and a bass player and a songwriter and... Uh, that's always been near and dear to me. And you know what? This is probably close to the most creative thing I've been able to do in the last couple of years. So, okay. so this is kind of nice. It's a little bit nerve-wracking. <laughs> have, you, have you podcasted before in any way? There was one time that my band was on a podcast with our good friends Mike and Colin. And as I recall, with the five or six people in the room all being very... A-type personalities, I was able to sit 
back and allow a lot of that to just happen okay. and kind of just be present for all of that. So okay. this is this is probably That's more than I. Like s- our marriage. <laughs> <laughs> Jack is so actually five. <laughs> Jack is five type A musicians packed into a thin candy shell. That's what Jack. Well, is. thin is debatable. Yeah. But thanks, Bob. <laughs> okay. Thin candy so, coating. Yeah. <laughs> She's sticky. Um, Ew. <laughs> yeah. Don't let her on white rugs. It's just a mess everywhere. Or let her have coffee in a white sweater. So she it didn't have- go well today. I think it was just the universe telling me you shouldn't take up coffee drinking after you gave it up for nearly two months. Yeah. So and well, another story, another yeah, time. Been smoted. So what we thought we would do for this, instead of just picking some random movies, because it is Valentine's Day, it's the season of love, it's about coming together and understanding. And that was our big thing on 14 Months Apart, what we were trying to do is figure out where we differed, where we came together on movies, but we always found the most fun we had is when we picked films that we were diametrically opposed to each other on. So that's what we thought we would do here today. So we've picked two films... Uh, one that is incredibly important to to me and Jack, to our upbringing as artists and just his love of the film itself, and one that Marty and his family absolutely adores, along with 99% of the rest of the planet. I think 99% I'm serious. I've been doing heavy. surveys with people. Maybe 70. I'd say this is a high 80 to 90% of the population. Really? It's so popular. It's the Eric Clapton unplugged of movies. <laughs> <sighs> okay, so Bob, but, tell, tell them what we're talking about. But the thing today. is here, the other group, Marty hates our movie, and we really don't like Marty's movie. So it's, that's why we're coming together on this. You know what's interesting this. is we usually, I'd say 99% of the time, agree on the same type of movie and TV shows. Yeah. This is somebody who enjoys watching like those action movies like Deadpool and all that stuff, which I hate, or political dramas and spy movies, but will also enjoy Jane the Virgin and Pretty Little Liars. Okay, I like how you conveniently left out all that reality trash that you guys watch every night. Cooking shows and House Hunters International is not reality trash. We're not talking MTV Big Brother. No, it's not the same. It's basically just the adult version of watching people play video games on YouTube. (laughs) No, yeah. But it's interesting that we differ so greatly on these films, but we actually have that in common. Okay. No, that is that is true. It's a good common ground. It'll keep it'll keep the uh, the the battle bloodless here. So our choice, me and Jack, the fourteen months apart approved choice. We are going to be talking about Jim Henson's nineteen eighty six masterpiece, Labyrinth. And Marty's choice is Rob Reiner's nineteen eighty seven, also a classic, The Princess Bride. So by benefit of alphabet, we are going to start with Labyrinth. Now. Jack, I can't remember seeing Labyrinth for the first time. Can you? Um, not the first time, but I do have very strong memories of us watching it in the Johnson's basement in yes. Hope. It just felt like one of those films that we just always seen. It's a movie that I have, like I said, no clear memory of sitting down the first time and watching it. No. But it was always a film that I knew, even from a very young age, I knew I had seen it. Which I guess it's I just odd. knew the movie, and yeah. I think I associate the Johnsons because um, we watched a lot of creepy things there, uh, and this movie is one of them. But they also had a labyrinth game, you know, the tippy ones with the marbles yeah. where you tip it all uh, around. Okay, so the, only thought, Brian Johnson could seem to it, work. Was it yeah. themed to the movie? No, no, it was, was just it like just an old school. Do you remember like, the one that you oh, absolutely. Box? Yeah. 
Yeah, every once in a while it would show up at random parties. Somebody would have one of these things and invariably everybody would take their turn throughout the night and go over and try it and then get frustrated and yeah. completely come very close to throwing, acro- throwing it across the room and then put it down and walk away. And Yeah, it's an incredibly frustrating game. Now, Marty, did you see this movie as a kid? I may have. But either I had to push it so far back into the recesses of my <laughs> subconscious okay. that because it was so scarring, either that or I just didn't see it. Okay, and you guys, you weren't huge movie people, is that correct? Because you're more of a music family. No, I would say we we saw a fair number of movies. I we spend a lot of time going to court with the TV and stereo and grabbing the briefcase. I think they Yellow probably briefcase. had a normal experience with film, yeah. and then we had a more tempered experience. You guys had you watched yes. a movie, you went on with your day. We I also had some pretty serious. Uh, Issues as a child with the fact that when my parent grandparents would go to Florida every year, they would lend us their VCR. Okay. And that allowed us to rent movies, but also to then record them onto blank tapes. And as you know, at the start of every movie is a very large warning that says <laughs> you are not supposed to do that. And I was fairly certain that my parents were going to jail for, <laughs> for recording these movies that we'd rented. And, okay. And there was always a, some trepidation. The FBI that. was going to kick in your door. Funny story with that. Um, probably around the same time that these movies were made, uh, Mrs. Hurst's grade two class, so okay. I was seven, so not even the 90s yet, um, we voted as a class, and because me being who I am, um, insisted that we watch The Wizard of Oz. I was going to share with the class all this greatness that is that film. But she was so nervous about the FBI warning that we walked to Mr. Baldwin's house, Bradley Baldwin's house, to watch it because it said this is only for viewing in home. Oh, my God. And we all went. We all watched it there. And then we walked back to Ovi. Could you imagine trying to do that now? A teacher saying, I'm taking the kids out of class to go over to someone's house to watch a movie. It was amazing. I mean, she was there. Brad's mom was there. Well, because it's totally fine. Um, he's a, he was a teacher at the time. He's now a council member on yeah. Peterborough Council. But she was so freaked out. And then because it was instated in me, uh, or instilled in me, that that was a real thing, we had to actually be careful about this. I think it's funny that Marty has a similar... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's let's start to first here so we don't get into a, like a, a spitting match. Let's talk about the things that you, we did enjoy about the film. Because, Marty, I'm assuming there are things about this movie that you you did enjoy, or is it just completely across the the slate or the park? No. Just a hard no. There's there's some some pieces that are entertaining. Hey, discuss. Some pieces <laughs> uh, that I get discuss. that I get some chuckles out of, certainly. Okay. Um the the utter confusion around what David Bowie's character is really doing kind of throws me for a loop. Like, okay, are are the children supposed to find him attractive? Or is he creepy? <laughs> He's clearly is attracted he, to the fourteen year old girl. What's the deal with the cod piece? <laughs> but on the whole, there's pieces here and there that I I do find entertaining. I really like the part where um, the uh, the riddle with trying to choose the right door, and okay. one tells the the truth all the time. One and one of us lies. always lies. I, I, I do. I I like that. 
Okay. I do like those pieces, and there's always things that you can pick out of there, and Sir Didymus is certainly entertaining. Um, In terms of Sawyer's experience, because... So how your son son reacted to this film. And Bob, how did you watch The Labyrinth? Oh my god. Because sometimes you will, you guys will show Sawyer a movie, or I'll watch it with you guys, and he's flopping around and whatever. Sawyer was locked in place, mm-hmm. leaning forward the whole time, and he never shut the fuck up <laughs> the whole time, which was, it's actually kind of endearing because Logan does that when he's, when nervous, he's nervous in a movie. He'll just chatter. But Sawyer, the whole, who's that? Why is that? What's going on? I don't like, daddy. <laughs> like just the whole movie. And it's usually I hate it when people talk, but his running commentary was so adorable because he was just so lit up. And he loved film. Sir Didymus. Well, he Sir Didymus him. steals every scene that he's in. Like, you just hear him. He wouldn't even be on screen. You'd hear Sawyer. Ambrosia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just start shouting and, and I think he was confused about the amount of violence. The goblins. He wasn't sure whether he should be scared of the Goblin King or either. And that was something yeah. that he kept asking. Is he a bad guy? I'm like, we don't really know. Well, there's that. In, it's an. The film strikes an interesting balance with the humor and the scary, because I think someone like Jim Henson, he learned a lot of lessons from The Dark Crystal, where that is kind of just one tone all the way across, and actually was much more successful financially than The Labyrinth. Labyrinth was a huge bomb, because people, like you said, didn't quite know what to do with it, because it sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's incredibly sinister. And very dark. Sometimes Bowie's friendly and nice. Then he throws a snake in her face. Yeah, or he's pitching the snakes at her. That very... Throwing chickens, kicking chickens. Very ambiguous ball sequence when he's trying to seduce her. It's We're kind of bouncing between these tones, and we just don't stop moving. The film is we're literally just moving from one set piece to another. Whereas I love The Dark Crystal, but it's a slow film. That's and Which is funny, because we didn't see The Dark Crystal no. as kids. Because in our mom's word, or in our mom's word, she said, "Well, we thought it was too much." Like, ma, we watched Rocky Horror, Labyrinth, Rocky Horror, Legend, where they literally descend into hell. We watched Neverending Story, Willow, Return to Oz, all these movies, but Dark Crystal was the Did one. Did you watch I Dark like. Crystal as a kid? No. That she drew the line at. I enjoyed that. But Jack, do you think? I because obviously there's a lot of appeal with us with this film I think as kids we all have that at least with us personally there's that escapism that wanting to escape into a magical world where you know sometimes our reality could be heavy and films like The NeverEnding Story Return to Oz Wizard of Oz this getting to kind of pick yourself up and be transported away Definitely had a huge appeal. I think so, but watching it now, I was really annoyed by how much of a whiny little bitch Sarah is. There's nothing wrong with her life. Her stepmother was not evil. She was asking her and then asked her if she had plans first before she had to babysit. And there was no indication that what was going on in her life was really bad. So I almost thought, like, you deserve what comes to you. Well, it's, yes, you know, it wouldn't be great if she was the world's best sister and had to go through it because then she doesn't learn anything. Right, I just I noticed this time the extreme parallels. She did. She learned to be selfless. That it's more important to need and want to be with others than just to be selfishly taking everything for yourself. I suppose. I was interested this time the parallels to The Wizard of Oz, 
because like Wizard of Oz is one of the original, like they call them portal fantasies, where someone from our world goes through some kind of gate or means to another world. Uh, Alice in Wonderland, Wizard of Oz, uh, Chronicles of Narnia, and this, like right down to she meets three companions. Yep. She has to accomplish a series of goals. Like it's, it's a trope. Like Wizard of Oz, I'm sure, wasn't the first to do it. It just did it so well. So that was fun to pick out. This time, but the fact that we've, I've seen this movie dozens, if not hundreds of times in our life. We watched it constantly. And I would watch it again, happily. But there's the fact that a film like this for us, I think, doesn't age. No. It just feels as wonderful. But I will say, you haven't truly appreciated it until you've seen it on the big screen. And you can actually see David Bowie's codpiece. No. Ten feet high. I saw it at the review probably seven years ago. That's so and anytime weird. the codpiece scenes would come up, the in like the hundred people in the audience, you'd see everyone collectively kind of lean back a little bit in their chair <laughs> yeah, no and kidding. nervously titter because it's huge on the big screen. I remember well the best quote I've heard about the labyrinth is what Crystal Lindsay said. That movie didn't answer as many questions as I was hoping it would as I got older. <laughs> that, that's true. That's because as a kid, I had no, I was just David Bowie. Like, we weren't exposed to like the way kids are now, this idea of gender ambiguity and all that kind of stuff. But now in this culture, like, it's, I'm surprised Labyrinth hasn't had a huge, like, a massive resurgence because of the wonderful gender ambiguity that it presents with that relationship and you're not quite sure what you're supposed to be doing with David Bowie. I think the biggest problem with this film though is that he's very pedophile like. Well there is, but I think that's like his attraction to a girl that's clearly younger than him. Mm -hmm. I think he actually loves her and he wants to keep her. He's come on, be my slave and I'll give you everything you want. Like that's weird. That's crossing a line for me as a parent. I'd say it's it is kind of a tra- a traditional type though, right? A traditional archetypal story. Like you, we got it in Legend, with darkness trying to seduce the princess in that, and it's super uncomfortable in that too, especially given the gown she's wearing. And she was like fifteen when she made that movie. Did you see Legend? I think I turned it off. One yeah, time. we did pre nose job Tom Cruise. We <laughs> turned it off when he still got his buck tooth. Yeah, his one wonky tooth. But no, it's now. I think this is a big question we have to address because it is a bit of the elephant in the room with both of these films. Is this issue of nostalgia, where you see some films as a kid and nobody can talk you out of it? It's almost like a, a fundamentalist belief that you have in these films. Do you think that mm. ab- applies to this situation? No, I don't. Because to me, it's an adventure story. It still made me laugh. It's not like I watched it and went. Ooh, yeah, okay. I get it. I get why people might not like it. I yeah. think it aged well. I still wanted to be Sarah watching it, except maybe <coughs> the less whiny version. Sir Didymus was hilarious. The puppetry was awesome. No, I don't think so. Okay. Not for me, anyway. No, I, I agree. I, there are films that I know I have a, a buy-in that is untouchable, like... Like the original Ninja Turtles cartoon. I think that's a bit of an easier way. Like Marty, I think you can speak to some of this where it's, we just love some of this stuff. But as an adult, you show it to the kids or whatever, and you're just sitting there like, oh, 
God, what was that? Well, Marty, how did you react? Well, were you a Power Rangers kid when you were a little? I was a little old. I was a little old for the Power Rangers, actually. Okay. My it, brother. Now, my brother watched it. He was five years younger than me, so there were there were times where I just, you know, there's only one TV, and there's really only so much on TV to watch. Mm-hmm. So if Power Rangers was on, the chances are. There wasn't anything better on at that time because there was only three channels. So we would end up watching Power Rangers. So I guess I could say I would. it was directed more at the younger generation, but mm. I did see a lot of it because okay. of that. Have you run into anything like that with Sawyer where you've got something, a show you loved as a kid or a movie you loved as a kid and you put it on for him, you haven't seen it in years, and you're just like, oh, shit. Aged like milk. Yeah. Um... Or Logan. I think we showed him a lot of stuff. I can't think of anything that I was like, ooh. I know for for me, and it it actually kind of came around because we, you know, as it happened so early for me that I saw the Ewok spinoff Oh, yeah. That is a (laughs) perfect example, Marty. Perfect. Thank you. That I turned around. I found them one time at um, Music World when it was still in the Lansdowne Place yep. Mall, and I found a double disc that had both of the movies on it, and I was thrilled. Because I hadn't Andoring, seen Caravan them since Courage. I was just a yeah. child. And Didn't you watch them with Logan one day when you were babysitting? I'll get there. Okay, sorry. Get, this case working his way <laughs> forward. He's long-winded. i got to push him forward. Jack's had point. a glass. He's working on a glass of wine. And you, as I, you recall, Jack gets feisty on the show. I watched the Caravan of Courage as a two- and three-year-old on repeat. I don't know, it might have have an issue to do with my whole desensitization completely, but my mom felt that it was okay to sit me down on the couch and let me watch that as a three-year-old. Leave you alone with Wilford Brimley for an hour. That was... That was Battle for Endor. The, yes. Yes, okay. So then the, the Battle for Endor comes around, and my grandparents had it taped. And I remember there was definitely some parts missing. Like, it ended 20 minutes short and somebody taped over it with Super Bowl 26 or whatever. Yeah. But both of those movies resonated because I'd watched them so many times. And I find this DVD and I'm like, I'm going to introduce all my friends who said they never saw this to these fantastic movies. And I put them in and I went, oh, this is awful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they are. The Ewoks were still cute. Yeah. They were great. Wicket, still fantastic. He's a bang-up actor, should still be getting jobs to this day, but the uh, it was very badly done. Yep. <laughs> and, however, Wilford Brimley did do did do a pretty good well, job Wilford Brimley of saving the second movie. In anything. Those moments, I find, are always depressing. I think the best example was a while ago, I was visiting Dawson when him and Amber were still in Hamilton. And we were hungover one morning. We're like, dude, what do you want to do? We're flipping through Netflix. And they just added the original Power Rangers. We kind of look at each other. It's like, let's watch the Green Ranger arc when Tommy first gets to be the Green Ranger. So we watched the five episodes. And as each episode is ending, we're progressively, like, slinking into our chair more and more. It's like 10 o'clock in the morning. And, like, I opened a beer. I'm like, oh, God. I get back to Toronto and I called Mom. Like, what's wrong? I'm like, I just watched Power Rangers as an adult. Pause. And? I'm so sorry that I put you through that. I like, I've been waiting a long time for that apology, young man. Yeah. Oh, it was just wretched. But, but there's still, you still feel a little warm about it. Like, I still feel a little warm about Power Rangers. But I think something like Labyrinth, that's, that's different. But it is fun, to, odd as an adult to 
put it on. I, I know how worked up. I am about film. Your guys' basement is a testament to just worked how up is worked a up soft I am. way of saying that. Yeah, that's that's a soft lob in on that. Obsessive, unhealthy, psychotic, yeah, unhealthy, yeah, probably unrealistic. Yeah. <laughs> you you can keep up the similes there if you got if you got any more teach. No, I'm good. <laughs> good, but it it is it's it's fun to show someone a movie like this, but it's also frustrating when you're so excited and to show it to Marty's like no. Because we had that hope sitting there. I'm like, I'm going to get him. No. He's going to watch this, and it's going to change his mind. So I showed him Return to Oz one year, and he fell asleep. And thankfully, my children both love it. They chose to watch it last snow day uh, last week. Um, but Marty was like, this is stupid. It's stupid. The whole thing is stupid. <laughs> Why? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you never know what's going to resonate with certain people. Now... Were you watching a kind of like dark, weird stuff like this as kids? Because I know you watched Willow. Like we've talked about that. You like Willow. We love Willow. I I could watch Willow again and again. The uh, but for whatever reason, these the Jim Henson stuff, which is funny because Fraggle Rock was such a big part of my upbringing, and the other you know Henson stuff was very much there. But the darker stuff did not make it. Hmm. Well, I think it's interesting that you say is a good segue that you like something like Willow because that's much more of a traditional yeah. fantasy story, and I think that leads us perfectly into something like The Princess Bride. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Marty, set the scene with us. How did you come to The Princess Bride as a kid? Was it? It, it happened so early. I mean, there's there's certain parts of my childhood that are just. They're gone, but I can't remember a time that the Princess Bride wasn't part. So it's kind of, of like my, a case yeah, like with us. When it when did it happen? You said nineteen eighty seven. I probably we probably rented it as a new release. Yeah. Like maybe had to take out a second mortgage to do it, but Oh come on. <laughs> well not to rent, but to buy. Because back then tapes were a hundred dollars plus. They were it was crazy. Yeah. Well, you you owned it? No, we, we taped it, it during the wintertime when my grandparents were at their condo so in Florida. So you rented it? Yeah, we rented it. Still, it still that cost a lot of money to rent movies. Then. You had to, if you were gonna, if you were gonna rent the VCR, you had to make a weekend of it. It was like, we're yeah. getting three movies with this thing because... And watching the this shit out of the, the big yellow suitcase yeah. from Court of the TV and Stereo. Exactly. Now, you had said, like, your... Was it your your dad that was stoked mom. on this? Your mom, or was it like kind of the whole family was just I think the whole family? Really, your mom still goes on about it. Can it. Before we even go any further, I just want to preface that Marty was more excited about his mother son dance at our wedding than he even cared about our dance. That's because not true. Give me a break. Because <laughs> he danced with his mom to the song, the theme song from The Princess Bride. But that's that's adorable. Oh, it's totally adorable. What but this, the song I'm did saying, you dance with dad to? Somewhere Over the Rainbow and the yeah. Rocky Horror Picture Show song. Yeah. We did a flash mob. It was great. Yeah. Um, but I'm saying that's how important this film is to Marty and his mom. <laughs> Now, Marty, what was it about The Princess Bride? Let's dig into some nitty-gritty here. What was it about this film that it's, got you? It's got everything. It's got action, revenge, swordplay, um, 
ex wrestlers. I mean, everything. that's what drew you as a child. Hey, Jack, as, Andre the Giant is as a kid. Maybe it's a little boy thing in the eighties and nineties, but I didn't even watch wrestling. But they were still imposing cultural figures and so many one liners or so many, so many generational lines that kind of transcend everything. Really? Or are they just cheesy dad jokes? If somebody, if somebody says, anybody want a peanut? Who you says know that? Lots of people. <laughs> well, that's, as that's I've said, it's, sequence. it's an important preface here because I'm, I'm, it's not hyperbole when I say that this movie is insanely popular. It's more popular than Labyrinth. It's more, it just is. This movie is fucking humongous. And Everybody out there seems to love it. So me and Jack are already behind the eight ball. We've always felt like we're kind of standing outside the party. Like we're lurking around the door. I don't even want to go to Looking this in. <laughs> like what the hell are they seeing in this? Like what are they doing? Maybe, so Maybe the labyrinth should have gone by the working tub- title Crazy Acid Trip Puppet Maze. And they would have sold more copies. It would have been a little more honest. At least honest. there was depth. Well, let's, Jack, let's talk then so we don't just attack it. Let's talk about... <laughs> hey, I can defend it all night long. Jack, was there, was there any parts of this film that you did like? Mm. Dig deep, be honest. I liked Inigo Indigo Montoya. Yeah, Inigo Montoya. Indigo. 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 It's, My name it's is not Inigo. Indigo. In, it's Inigo, but Inigo. Inigo Montoya. So you can't even pronounce the fucking names in this movie. <laughs> He's Spanish. Um... I he was okay. I like Andre the Giant. Like he's massive, and it's kind of cool to see like grown men be very small beside him. Um, aside from the sexist, racist, um, I don't know that kind of stuff. No, that was really hard. And I thought I'd watch it with an open mind, saying, mm-hmm. "Okay, this time." I checked my phone more times than was necessary. <laughs> okay. <laughs> They're having watched it this time because... Oh, oh, I oh, know. Okay. I do like the little kid and the grandpa. The Fred Peter Savage Falk and Peter Fred, Sa- Fred Savage I, and Columbo. Come on. What's not to like? It makes you do this with your hands, and that's maybe a part of why I hate the whole movie. <laughs> Um, what we're doing is weighing the options, guys, because you can't see us. It's like, eh, left um, right. No, I, I enjoy that piece of it. And then looking at, like, a 90s kid's room, early 90s. Yeah, no. I can't. None of it worked for you? No, okay. I thought it was terrible. Well, that's... I, I've seen this movie a lot because whether it's being in a relationship or my friends, everyone I know loves it. So I'm constantly oh, yeah. being forced to, like, just try it. Just try it one more time. Like, just the tip. Like, you can do it. <laughs> and this time, there were more things that I did enjoy. The sword fights are absolutely incredible. Yeah. And those sword fights were choreographed by a man named Bob Anderson. He was Errol Flynn's stunt double. Oh, interesting. Back in the day, he was in the Darth Vader suit for all the sword fights in Star Wars. He choreographed the sword fights in Lord of the Rings. He's just an absolute legend. And it felt to me like the the sword fights were telling story. Yeah. It wasn't just, like, obviously they're talking to each other, but just the fighting itself. And because it's fencing, it can be much more flary and dramatic. So I like that. It's, It's William Goldman adapting his own novel. And this guy is... Just as a quick rundown, he wrote Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Stepford Wise, Marathon Man, Magic, Adapted Misery, wrote All the President's Men, A Bridge Too Far. Like He's one of the pillars of 20th century 
screenwriting. Like, you can't mess with that. And I think that. the book might be good because it is, it's not an in-your-face action movie. It's, like, poetic at times. Like, there's something about the narrative that's interesting and quirky, but it's lame. When you put it, to me it is, when you put it mm. on screen, it's like, oh, groaner after groaner after groaner. Well, we had, we had also talked at dinner last night about this almost very Mel Brooksian yeah. tone that they took with it, where it was straddling this weird line where it felt like at times it's parroting yeah. the fantasy genre, but it it wouldn't commit all the way. Are you making a fantasy comedy or are you making comedy about fantasy, right? It's like a horror comedy. It needs yeah. to be scary and funny. You can't, or it's funny because it's trying to be scary. Like Men in Tights, which is clearly a parody. Yes. Or things like Spaceballs or Blazing Saddles where yeah. it's having a, a romp, and, but you know the whole time. Yeah. Where this I felt odd, but I think it's that flippy tone that works for so many people. Yeah. Well, would, think, would you say that's correct, Marty? I would think that. Like when you think, and the, the scene that stands out the most to me is the Miracle Max scene with Billy Crystal in old makeup <laughs> And he's, you know, he's making a mockery of this guy being dead, <laughs> or mostly dead. And mm. he just goes on and on and on about it. And, and you know, coat, chocolate coating on the pill and all this stuff. I think that those pieces are those, those parody pieces that you talk about. You know, this guy's jilted because he was fired by the prince, and he'll do anything, including, you know, get this, make this guy come back to life. So that's clear. And obviously, if that that's a parody. They're ma- it's Billy Crystal and that other woman in makeup. Mm. But then there's the scene that pisses me off about if they're really true loves meant to be, um, why does he pretend when he sees her to test this woman to see if he's re- she's really in love with him? He raises her hand to him to her and then says there's punishment for women where I come from when they speak that like that. And then there's no off-putting. joke about it. Yeah. And then like, you're laughing because she throws herself down the hill after him. I'd be friggin' livid if my love came back, pretended to be dead for all this time, didn't come to find me, and then start almost hit me in the face for speaking her mind. Like, that, I was like, okay, this isn't even funny anymore. This is rude. There, there was elements of that that I found off-putting. Like, the, the love story at the start, like, she's into him because she can order him around? Yeah. Like that, like, yeah, Carrie always is cute, but you know, it worked for Alicia Silverstone, but, uh, the crush. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, there are, I just, I get it. It's one of those films where I get it. You know, it's like the Godfather. I get it. I just can't get into it as a whole. Cause there's parts when he's half paralyzed and they're dragging him around like weekend at Bernie style that and they're on the scene. wall and they're lifting funny. his head up and that it's all this great funny. physical gags. I'm like that's funny as shit because it's fantasy comedy. Yeah. It's, they're not making they're it's, you should never go into storming the castle when you can't move. That's hilarious. Oh yeah. But it's just, I couldn't get on board as a whole but Andre the Giant stole every scene he's I in because he's so. so adorable. I also think, and I never noticed this before, so the six-fingered man is like the yes man for the prince or the king. Yeah, he's the sheriff of Nottingham. There is a scene where he tells 
after he's promised Buttercup he's not going to kill him, he's just going to put him on the ship, where he tells the six-figured man to kill him, and that twice in that scene he says, it shall be done. And it's also like him, Wesley, saying, as you wish. It's almost like they're saying the six-figured there man. There was a tension between yeah. those two and that I, never I picked noticed up it. on. And then I'm like, oh, it's the same. he's saying the same thing. It shall be done. It shall be done, um, yeah. my, your majesty. But it's the same statement as, as you wish. Then he proceeded not to not kill him and simply torture him a fair bit. But he, he did it, and then the the king liked it. I noticed that when they, he's looking around for the entrance and he's talking to him, he's like, well, when we, when will you be coming down? He's like, well, I have so much to do. I'm like, yeah. And they're kind of <laughs> almost, they're smiling at each other with their eyes, but their faces are Which staying slack. Which I did, slack. that was... Like, that's funny as hell. Subtle and slight, and it yeah. juxtaposed this true love relationship, but, ugh. I don't know. I think it might be blasphemous to a lot of fans. Having not read the book, I can't comment, but I think this movie could definitely benefit from an update. Yeah. And anchor the cultural norms a little better, where we are in terms of love story and stuff, but also decide on your tone. Marty, do you think this movie should be touched? I don't know if it should be touched. I think that the, again, going back to the book might be it might be serve a purpose to go back and read it again and and get a feel per, perhaps there is a lot more to that count rugen and prince humperdink maybe there's a lot is, more is to is there the something story. in the name perhaps mm. humperdink um <laughs> humperdink <laughs> oh he wants him jack skellington wants book, some of that sheriff the book actually in, in the start of it, it almost makes you think you picked up the wrong version of the book because it talks about the, the character wanting to find this book that his grandfather read to him and can never find it. Then he comes across this book and he starts reading it and he's, and he's reading it and he's saying, it's boring as anything. And then once he reads through it, he realizes that his grandfather that read it to him was actually picking out only the good parts. Well, that's adorable. Why wouldn't you? And it's actually a story of Gilder and Florin and political unrest. And that's the actual heart. Why wouldn't they do that? That's terrible. Why wouldn't they do that? (laughs) Now I'm even more mad at this. Fuck you, Rob Reiner. (laughs) That would have made a beautiful, that almost made me cry. That sounds that amazing story. to find that out at the end. And, that's and it what makes even more to. sense that Humperdinck and Rugen are actually, you know, high up in this political unrest and, you know, really have eyes for each other, but you couldn't have possibly done it at that time. What a shame. What Net- a okay. damn shame. Netflix, let's get on should this. We, should we all just, like, get into PJs and start reading the book out loud? I'm kind of tempted. Like, <laughs> really, this right? is That actually sounds like a much better movie yeah. than the one we got. But it's... It's, I'll never, I never get tired. You guys might hear a TV in the background because the children it's are okay. in the They're other being room. Quiet and the dog is actually chewing her chew toy. Yeah, she's not eating anything else or one of the children. I, I never get tired looking at films that are insanely popular that I don't get or meeting somebody that a film that I consider just pantheon that I can't fathom someone not liking. And they give me real art. It's like, no, I just, nothing works for me. It just doesn't get to me. Yeah, and I I tried to have an open mind. I watch it from start to finish, but I can easily say I never want to see it again. I think Robin Wright is adorable in this movie. She's so cute and pretty, and she plays the role really well. Mm -hmm. Um, Kind of an airhead, but kind of independent because she's stuck in that time period, whatever it is. 
Carrie, Ewell's, Elwes, whatever. Um, good casting. Well, he's kind of that bit of that sly, roguish devil, and he's. It's, I don't know if he's British. I can never quite tell. I with just him. always think that when you cast a love story, that the people watching should want should be in love with that person, whether it's male or mm. female, depending on your preference. I I was more attracted to Princess Buttercup than I was to Wesley because he's just a jerk. Yeah, it's- he left her crying on a stool. And also, another question I have here, how did they have servants? They were living dirt poor with dirt floors. Well, they say she's a... Marty, can you help explain this to me? Because I was confused at the beginning, where she's a beautiful princess who loved ordering she around did, the world. She wasn't princess. a princess. She was just a farm just, girl. Just a they, just hap- they just happened oh. to have a farm hand. He chose her in the entire kingdom because he decreed that he can choose whoever he wants to marry, and he thought she was pretty. Yeah. Oh, he wanted to bang a commoner. Okay. Yes. Yeah, but... He was once a commoner like yourselves. How... Did they afford help? And where are her parents? They don't address any of that. I don't know if her parents... I think they're trying to say that the parents didn't matter in the situation. They were just going to take her away anyways. Well, then say that. Yeah, it's it's odd. It's odd. Okay. It's it's a strange film. Do you want me to say it now? <laughs> Should we like, call Rob Reiner? <laughs> Rob! See, yeah. <laughs> Uh, where were Buttercup's parents throughout this whole ordeal? I have a lot of questions. In these days, she couldn't have been more than 15 or 16, and you let her go away like that? Come on. Well, five years later of crying over her lost love, who was actually alive and marauding around the world having fun. Well, he couldn't leave the ship until he became... The new dread. Yeah, but that pirates. took like what six months? I don't. It was years. It was Send a years. telegram. I don't think, Send I don't a think pigeon. He had, I don't think he was having a good time. Did you not hear him telling the story about the dread pirate Robert saying, "Good night, Wesley. Sleep well. Most likely to kill you in the morning." Like I he said that, that for three years. He said that. That part I got where he, as soon as he became the dread pirate yeah. Robert, he immediately sailed back to her. Yeah. Another. But question then he that. sailed back to punch her in the face. Yeah. Or, like, no, hit her for being so ignorant as a woman. Yeah. I think he was... Maybe it shouldn't have been such a the underlying theme there is that he was testing for some reason, and I can't tell you why he was doing it, but he was testing to see if she was still really in love with him. You test me and you see how well it worked. I'm not throwing myself down a hill after you after you do that to me. I love you, but don't. I... Don't think we're in the same situation. No, but if I don't we were, on, I don't plan on. He now, could, he could have if, said to carry her if Marty <laughs> went to work one morning, dropped me off, and was kidnapped by pirates, would that change the situation? Like, say, the last Saskatchewan pirate marauded along. Saskatchewan so, pirate. It's a song. It's hilarious, um, <laughs> and kidnapped him, and he was forced to live the pirate life. Would you consider that well, a, a good reason to be away, or would you just start lighting up his text, his phone with angry messages? I like, love my husband. How's another day in the sun, Marty? But how's those toned muscles going from pulling the rigging all day? The pirate lifestyle <laughs> is not for my husband. Because <laughs> he would. T- this his Slot abdomen hands. would all turn to concrete. So too fast. Too fast. So he'd it's be true. he'd be bad ballast. He gets scurvy so bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, like liquor, hot sauce, singing. Marty, I think you might have actually missed your calling as a pirate. <laughs> An insurance pirate. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I get it. You want to burn down our ship, but 
What's your coverage in case the flame jumps from Oh my god, <laughs> no. Um, another question I have, and maybe you guys saw this differently. Um, when uh, Fe- is Fez? Fezzy Wig? No, Fezzy Wig's the Muppet. Fezzini? Fozzy Wig is from... The big guy. Andre, Andre the, the Giant. Giant. When they... <laughs> <laughs> they set him up on Fezzik. rollers, right? Fezzik, thank you. He was you. on a wheelbarrow. Um, and then they set him on fire. That part was confusing. Okay. It was shot. <laughs> you were just as confused as I was, because then I'm like, well, maybe he's not there, and he's whispering from behind, and then they, no, he's clearly on fire, and it's not bugging him. Giants don't burn? Were you a naive child? <laughs> you a lot of paint chips when you were a kid. <laughs> No, why? Uh, but, I, that's a no but I get I get with stuff like this because it's <coughs> it's so easily quotable. It's it's so popular that if you see stuff young, you just it just becomes a part of you. Where you don't so much watch the movie to watch the whole thing. You're waiting for your favorite scene. It's like when you hear people talk about going to a Rush show. It's like you're waiting for that favorite part and you want to see them do it exactly the same <laughs> way that you loved it every time. So like the the Mowage or whatever, you yeah. want to, you're just waiting for that scene. It's like, oh, yes. You know. I get it. I get why people like it. I yeah. get why it's a cult classic. It's just not for me. No. And that's fair. It's we're agreeing. That's what I think about that. We're agreeing to disagree. That's what I think about your movie. <laughs> we're agreeing to. Marty was just having some digestive problems. <laughs> hey Bob, Bob, you were in charge of the chili. Yeah, that <laughs> it was that good is chili. true. It wasn't bad chili, but no, this was it's something. this was fun. It's always fun to pick a movie that you're like, okay, we'll see how it goes, and they're like, nope, and then it ends. Sometimes like with Dawn of the Dead with me and Jack, it ends. You're like, huh. Okay, I get it now. Not your favorite movie ever. No, and but I wouldn't you got watch it. it again, but I did get it, and I actually enjoyed the original as opposed to the remake when I knew the background. Yeah. But I think that I would love the Princess Bride remake. Now I want to read the book yeah. real bad. We have it's it. It's on the shelf. Oh, well, shit. Now I'm go. going to read the book real bad. So that was fun. It was fun to have the old 14 months part game. It gang was. Back. It was nice to be back. Nice to be back on the microphone. It was. So we will be, it won't be once a month, guys, as I had originally planned it to be. It'll be a little more when Sporadic. we can make it happen. <laughs> so we will definitely do this again. And I want to thank both Jack and Marty for joining me here. So a round thank of applause for, for, having us. for both for of you. Back. It was quite fun. I'm glad the kids did it's been really great well. having us. Yeah. Yep, be great. Thank you for coming into your own house and talking on the microphone where you live. I even waited to turn on the dishwasher and the washing machine. Oh, you guys are so nice. I know. All right, well, I would take a quick break to ease these two out. You guys won't know any time has passed, but we'll be back to uh, keep on trucking with Deep Space Nine. And I'm back. Wow, that was magic. It's the, I don't know who who the quote is from. Whether it's Walter Murch or Stanley Kubrick or Albert Hitchcock or somebody where it's something to the effect of a thousand years can pass in the snap of one single edit. It's the power of that. Or the silliness of the fact that I just paused to get the kids and Jack and Marty and everybody out of the room and wait for all the chaos and stuff to kind of die down upstairs. So, as I said, it's time for Deep Space Nine. This brings us to episode seven, which, sadly and fun, I guess, this is the last of the aligned release dates. So it's been kind of the fun thing about doing these first seven episodes is their 1993 release date starting in January actually lined up purely by accident. I had no plan for this lined up perfectly until now with the dates that these shows are hitting. So that's fun. So episode seven aired February 14th, 1993 and is called Dax. 
And the synopsis is as follows. Jadzia Dax is accused of murder of a murder that her previous host, Curzon, supposedly committed. Ooh. Now, this one is a heavy character episode. And each one of these up till now has been kind of focusing a little bit on a different... Each A-plot, I guess you would say, has focused on a different character, one of our leads. Just to give us a little more background, get a feel and a vibe for who they are. And now it's Dax's turn. So this one... Right from the name, you know it's about Dax. But what's fun about this is we're getting information about Jadzia, but as the title states, we're also getting information about the Dax symbiote, because that's what's interesting about a character like Jadzia. So a bit of a history on the Trill, for those that aren't aware. The Trill, they're humanoid species, look like us, except they've got dots, uh, spots on their face that go all the way down to their feet. What they have available to them on their planet are these organisms called the symbiote. And they bind with them, they insert them into their body surgically, and they store the memories and experiences of whoever is hosting them at the time. So say if I had one live with it inside me my whole life and then died, it would be passed on to the next person, and they would now have all of my memories, thoughts, feelings for my entire life. And a part of my personality would start to, would blend into theirs a little bit. By the time Jadzia gets the symbiote, I believe she's the seventh host. So almost 300 plus years of life and experience. So she's 27 years old, I think. Jadzia is when the show starts. But she has the combined life experience of these seven other people over a period of 250, 300 years. So she's already a very complex character, but she's a hard character to explain. Just how does that work? How much of her is her? How much is the symbiote? How much is the other people's personalities? And they'll explore it well over the show. But what this one does is it really helps ground the character and explain to everybody just how she functions, what the symbiote does, what parts of it are the organism, what parts are Dax, who, how does she benefit, who, who is she separate from the symbiote, and who is she as this character that we're going forward, who we're going to get to know. And what this episode does really well Because it would be easy for her just to be kind of a fount of wisdom. She's kind of the know-it-all archetype. She knows everything. She's perfect at everything. But here we get to know that, no, she is this independent character. She is, she's not a sum of all, she's not a sum of all these parts. She is a piece of this whole thing that's come into her, if that makes any sense. Now, they would completely piss this right down the tubes with what I like to call crappy Dax in season seven, where she is just the symbiote spouting stuff for her own edification. For Jadzia, her job that she does on the station, that's her job. She got all those degrees and knowledge and information and training before she took on the symbiote. So that's what's so neat about her. This information, this legacy that she carries, it just helps enrich the character. Um, There's lots of fun things that this episode introduces for the first time. The big thing is it introduces 
Ractuccino, which is Klingon coffee. And yes, it's just a funny name for cappuccino, but it would become kind of a reoccurring thing on the show where everybody, and they get up in the morning and they have to have their, their cup of Ractuccino, their cup of coffee. It's another element of the great kind of down and dirty blue collar aesthetic. You know, Captain Picard drank Earl Grey tea in the morning and he was very classy about it. These guys get up for another day on the station. It's like, oh, God, I need coffee before I can do anything. I gotta get my coffee. So that's great and fun. So, how this episode all centers around is her previous host is accused of murder and she's put on trial. And it's to prove whether, as someone who carries the memories of this person, if she can be held guilty of a crime that a previous host committed. Or is the is she her own person and the symbiote is separate, or are they one? And you get this this great court case is really how this whole thing is set up, as it's a court case episode. And I think it's it's definitely an episode that could only happen on Deep Space Nine, one because we have the trill, but also because the episode ends in ambiguity. It doesn't have a nice clean cut ending. Like if this was a next generation episode. Picard would have found some way, some piece of evidence or argument or philosophical quote or whatever that proved clean cut that she's not responsible. She's a completely separate person. Here, they they leave it gray. It's not that's not actually what decides it. It's the fact that this she's trying to, I guess, to sum it up. She's not defending herself against these charges in order to protect this memory of this famous general who was killed and his death resulted in his side winning this war. So he's become this legend. They're desperately trying to protect this memory. But to protect this memory, she's willing to die. And it turns out that the previous host was actually sleeping with the general's wife the night of the supposed deception. And... We, you know, this, to add to the levels of ambiguity, this man that she's trying so desperately hard to protect turned out himself to be the traitor and he was killed for it. But that secret, they still decide to guard because sometimes a lie on that level is important and worth preserving. There's just... It's such a great episode because it just reinforces the fact that the world is not simple. It's not just clean cut. We're going to come at this intellectually and philosophically and diplomatically, and that will always resolve our problems. No, sometimes the world is uglier than that. Sometimes there's adultery and betrayal and you can't explain to people why you're behaving a certain way and you're willing to go to these extreme lengths to guard this legacy and honor. Wonderful. And Jadzia only gets better. All of the characters only get better, but her character only gets richer with each episode. So absolutely great episode. So to bring us into to our close, to draw us towards parking spot. Yes, I've been doing a lot of driving lately to prep for my G2 test. So that analogy felt apt. The book this week, uh, I think I finished it a week ago, two weeks ago, maybe a week ago. I read Christopher Moore's 2006 book, A Dirty Job. Now, I've been familiar with Christopher Moore's work for some time. I read 
Practical Demon Keeping, his first book in 2007 or 8. And to be perfectly honest, I didn't like it. I didn't care for the book. I wasn't into the humor, the style. So I didn't come back to it for quite some time. And then about four years ago, maybe five years ago, I read his book, Lamb. Or the Gospel According to Biff, Christ's Childhood, Childhood Pal. And that book is fucking brilliant. I cannot recommend it enough. So since then, I've been reading through his books. I've read The Stupidest Angel, Fluke, or I Know Why the Winged Whale Sings. Uh, what else have I read? Uh, the Last Lizard of Melancholy Cove. I recently also read Coyote Blue. And then this one I've had on my shelf for a while. So I'm like, hell. I'm coming into some fantasy stuff to talk about on the show. Let's stick with the fantasy. So the novel is good, but it's messy. It's, it is about a man who, upon the death of his wife, becomes a grim reaper, for lack of a better word, or as they call to come, they come to call themselves death merchants. It's, the idea of a funny Grim Reaper story done by Christopher Moore to me was, I'm like, oh, well, shit, that's a no-brainer. I've The more I've read of Moore, especially his later work, I I don't know how much of a plotter he is or a discovery writer. I'm leaning on the idea that he's more of a discovery writer, only for the fact that this book goes kind of all over the place. It starts with he's lost his wife, he's just had his daughter been born, and he's trying to figure out how he fits into this world of being a Grim Reaper, but then it turns out he's not a Grim Reaper, he's actually helping shuffle souls from one body to another upon death, because some people don't have souls, but if he doesn't get the soul in a set amount of time, then these amorphous demons come and get them and then they can reclaim the earth and then but then his daughter becomes kind of this all like actual like alpha death like the grim reaper itself and it jumps forward in like years at a time it's i did like the book i know i'm kind of muddling on it here but i did find it very jarring because it really does bounce around. Now, it's in that great Christopher Moore style where you never know what's going to happen. And it's funny and it's charming and heartwarming, but it I needed a little more structure to the plot. I think when he has a focused plot, it works better in something like uh Lamb or even Coyote Blue or it's a little more chaotic but less litters, Lizard of Melancholy Cove Cove or Stupidest Angel. When he's just kind of free-floating, I found I I wasn't lost, but I felt that there were threads that I was starting to get really invested in emotionally, and then he'd bounce to something completely different. And it also, something I've noticed in his books is the love interests of some characters, they tend to be perfect. They're always stunning, they're sexual dynamos, And they immediately fall in love with the heroes without much prompting and immediately go to bed with them and they're their saving grace. I, that can work if you have a story that supports those kind of characters. But this one, she really comes out of left field and is just perfect and they bang and love each other and it's all wonderful. I'm like, eh. And it took the story in a really weird turn. There's lots of fun stuff mingled in that. But it's it's messy. It's 
odd because I really liked the book. I liked it more than some of his other stuff, but it's the one I have the most problems with, but I didn't have any problems reading it. I know this is odd because it's always odd when you try and discuss something or or review something, I guess, to use the dreaded R word, that you really liked, but there were serious problems with it, but those problems didn't prevent you from enjoying it. If that makes any sense, I just felt like it could have been more if there had have been more focus or if it some of the stuff had have been pared down a little bit. I think that might have helped. It was because I just read Coyote Blue before this, his second novel, and it introduced a character named Minty Fresh. Just by happenstance, I read that first. And then when I went to this, I was like, oh, shit, Minty Fresh makes a comeback here. Because Christopher Moore is known for kind of a shared universe, other than a couple of his books that don't touch on anything. But this one is connected to Coyote Blue, and it's connected to his vampire series, uh, Suck and Love Bites and those ones. So that was that was kind of fun to see those connections. So and I know he's done it before, Stupidest Angel and Lamb and Practical Demon Keeping and I think Lust Lizard and Stupidest Angel all kind of connect with each other with just characters kind of roaming around that if you don't if you haven't read one of the other books, you don't miss anything. But it's just kind of fun cameos, you know, a little bit of MCU style. You know, one of the the old literary shared universes. So that was fun. I I do recommend the book. I, I would suggest it. I think the best and worst place to start with Christopher Moore is Lamb because it is, by and large, his best books and one of the best books I've ever read. But the problem is, once you come off that, what I've read of his work thus far, that's not just the apex. It knocks it so far out of the park that it's really hard to compete with that. And I'm I'm sure as an author, he knows that. And it's got to be frustrating every time he sits down to work on a book. But check it out. The Dirty Job by Christopher Moore. Excellent book. This week's recommendations are going to stay pretty much on point here with what we've been talking about. Uh, for movies, I would recommend Legend by Ridley Scott. And as Marty said, another flick that he loves, Willow by Ron Howard. Both great examples of that mid to late 80s heavy fantasy style, very pre-CG, great organic worlds. Can't get enough of both those movies. Uh, the With Legend, it's, it's an odd flip here because there's two cuts of this film. The director's cut is better. It's a better film, but it went with the original Jerry Goldsmith score that I just don't like as much as the Tangerine Dream score that they replaced it with in the theatrical cut. So I'm conflicted on this one. The I'd almost say go with the theatrical cut, even though you're missing out on stuff, just because the Tangerine Dream score is so good. Or at the end of the day, just watch both. Uh, hopefully one day we'll get a cut of the, the uh, director's cut that they release. Somebody dubs in the Tangerine Dream score. That would be great. And for a book, I again, staying on message, I have to recommend Lamb by Christopher Moore. I, I literally cannot recommend this book enough. It is funny and intelligent and makes you look take a look at Christianity in a way that doesn't insult or attack it. But actually, if this was a missing gospel... I think would actually enrich the entire experience for the better. Absolutely excellent book. 
So that brings us to the episode, the end of episode seven. Hope you guys had a good time with this. I know it was a little more, it wasn't much of a deep dive into the films. It was just kind of designed to be a bit of a fun back and forth between the three of us. I may later on come back because I do, there's a lot in Labyrinth that I would really love to dig deeper into. So I may come back at some point and do maybe a bit of a Jim Henson deep dive with something like Dark Crystal and Labyrinth or Labyrinth and Legend or Willow and that all that kind of great dark fantasy that I grew up watching. So what's coming next? Episode 8 will be out on the 21st, and I've done one movie, I've done two movies. I thought I would just go completely fucking hog wild, because you'd think you'd go big for, for Valentine's Day. Fuck that. Valentine's Day sucks. So for the next episode, for episode 8, I'm going to focus on family, and I'm going to go crazy. I'm going to be looking at all four of the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle films. Yes, I said all four. So that is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the original, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Use, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3, and the animated film TMNT, because that is a sequel to the other three. It functions as a continuation of that story. Not touching the Michael Bay messes. I'm sure I'll make some allusions to the shows, to the various incarnations, but it's focusing on all turtles, all the time, our favorite heroes in the half shell. So that should be fun. Until then, you can find me on Facebook at Steal My Name Cast. You can find me on SoundCloud at Steal My Name Podcast. iTunes might be fixed by now. If not, search Steal My Name Podcast. If that doesn't work, you can search 14 months apart. So I want to thank you guys very much for joining me for episode seven. I want to thank Jack and Marty for agreeing to come and do this with me and leave the kids out there unattended. If you well, not unattended, obviously Logan's 13 and he's watching the smaller one and the dog was watching both of them and the cat was plotting how to murder us all because that's what Taco does. If you hear or if you heard some TV or yelling or whatever, that was just the kids in the other room. I apologize, but it's the joy of family. So until next time, thank you very much. And remember to steal someone else's name because this one is already taken.